Good morning to you. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12, 1 Samuel chapter 12. And there should be some handouts making their way around. We have a lot to cover this morning, a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to dive us in pretty quick. Um, so, First Samuel is what we would consider a narrative account. That is, it's telling us a story as we're going on. That would be different, say, than we just finished Galatians, which is an epistle, which is just a big Latin word for letter, um, and it, it, it uh, inside of a letter. You're, you're getting more just instruction, then a little bit more instruction, a little bit more instruction. But inside of a narrative, you're catching uh, a story. That's, I say that to say we're preaching through this one little bit at a time, then a break, then a break. So it is tough at times to, to follow that, so I catch that. So I'm going to quickly summarize. So if you haven't been with us for each message, maybe, maybe in this few moment summary you'll you'll catch an idea of what's going on there in uh in first samuel so in the first three uh chapters there in first samuel we find israel is in a low and a desperate spot things are not looking good for israel and seemingly out of nowhere um out of a barren womb god brings us samuel um, and, uh, and the fact that he comes out of barren womb seems to, to show us that God is willing to provide for the people. So that's kind of the first three chapters. Then um, by chapter four through seven, we see Israel is powerless against their enemies, the Philistines. And the Philistines rob them of the, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and then at the same time, while Israel is powerless, God is not powerless. God can overcome the enemies of uh, the people of Israel, the enemies of God. God can do it without the need for the Israelites to help at all. And we see that culminate in chapter 7 when God just single-handedly wipes out the Philistines. Looks like they're going to be, Israel's going to be just completely taken over and God just steps right in, takes them out, no problem. And then the weirdest thing happens right after that. In chapter 8, the Israelites come to uh, Samuel and say, you know what, we need a king like all the other nations to take care of us. The very chapter after God single-handedly wipes out the Philistines, we need a king, take care of us. Well, sure enough, chapter 8, they ask for him. Chapter 9, they get him. They get a guy by the name of Saul, whose name means something like you ask for him um, or ask for. Um, so we get him. And then in chapter 10, we get Saul. So we're introduced to Saul. Here's your king. Here he is. Saul is told by Samuel to do a couple of things. One of the things that he's told to do is go take care of this Philistine garrison. He doesn't do that. Uh, Samuel also says, when you get when you finish that part, I'll meet you down in Gilgal. Wait for me seven days. Um, we'll offer a sacrifice. Well, that never happens because uh, Saul never takes care of the garrison. We'll see more about that today. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 11, the Ammonites are pressing in on the Israelites. In the Israelites, this is by a guy by the name of Nahash. Um, Nahash is the Ammonite king. He's pressing in on the people of Jabesh Gilead. 
uh, they try to make a treaty. They're going to solve this problem. So they go and they're going to try to make a treaty. Uh, they say to the king, hey, what would it take, you know, for you to leave and us to go on with our lives as normal? And he said, no problem. If I just gouge out everybody's right eye, we'll be, we'll be good. Um, well, that didn't go so well. Um, so the people are crying, not crying out to God, just crying. Um, and, uh, and God sends Saul um, uh, to uh, their king. And sure enough, God uses their king to take care of the problem and a big celebration ensues. Um, and so let's actually pick up there uh, at the beginning of this celebration at the end of chapter 11. God has rescued the people through Saul. The people are all happy. The party is on. And there in verse um, uh, 12 through uh, 15 of chapter 11, here we go. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put him to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death today. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Verse 14 of chapter 11. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you for your kindness to draw us, but a thousand times over, thank you for giving us a word to gather around. Uh, this is unbelievable. But Father, as unbelievable as it is, it's strange. Here we are, modern folks, gathered around a very ancient text about warfare, people's treaties, people having their eyes gouged out. This is strange. And yet it's the way that you have instructed your church to learn about you. And so, Father, I pray. I really pray for help for me, but I pray for help for listeners to your word today. I pray that you would allow us to learn about you today, that you would be highlighted. We would gain knowledge of who you are um, with our time in your word. Father, I pray in particular that the person of Jesus Christ would be seen and treasured in our midst together as we stare at and learn from your word. It is your spirit, the third person of the Trinity that's given your word. It is you, Father, who have ordained your word, and it is your son who deserves all the highlighting all the, the treasuring, all the uh, glory as we see him, our great king, uh, uh, highlighted in your word together. We pray for that in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. There are many reasons um, to look up to Mark and Amy Andrews. Um, this could be because of their amazing, incredible uh, musical talent could be their ability to raise chickens that produce awesome eggs. I want to submit, though, that one of the top reasons to look up to the Andrews is their ability 
to fly standby on a regular basis and remain sane. For me personally, there are few more terrifying words spoken by an airline than, it's okay, Mr. Martin, we've got you on the standby list. If you're not uh, familiar with this concept of flying standby, it means that you're on a list where you may or you may not get on that plane to fly. You don't have a confirmed seat. Uh, if, if, if they were to get you on, who knows where you may sit? Um, and that means that your luggage, well, who knows about your luggage? Uh, it takes real travelers, travelers with real courage and guts to fly standby. And, and given Mark's job with the airline, he and Amy can get on standby list for free. Uh, they do this on a regular basis. And as far as I can tell, the boat's still same. Um, that is real reason to look up to them. As a paying customer, there are times and circumstances where you find yourself in this predicament where you're flying standby. And I always find it very challenging. And that's, that's actually a euphemism, a euphemistic way to put it, um, uh, to, to be in this situation. Why? Because I'm wholly at the mercy of circumstance. Uh, you find yourself in this odd predicament where you're rooting for fellow humans to miss their flight. So you can get on in their spot. Um, we don't like this. We don't like being in positions like this because we find ourselves wholly dependent upon what may or what may not happen. We're wholly dependent, wholly living upon the mercy of another. I believe much of this desire to have control, have control over their own destiny is what drives Israel to say, you know what, we want a king. We want a king like the other nations. They were tired of relying upon the mercy of God to rescue them when their disobedience had got them in a bad spot. They looked around and said, the other nations have control over their destiny. We want control over ours. So as we come into chapter 12, you got to understand that the setting of chapter 12, verse 1, where we'll pick up, it's the exact same setting as the party we just left off. It, chapter 11 ends with something like a blend of a worship service and a victory parade. The mood could hardly be more upbeat. The people, they have their king. Their king just won his first major victory, and now they're sacrificing to Yahweh, their Lord, and so in the midst of this, this excitement, in the midst of all of this upbeat atmosphere, Brother Samuel, ah, good old Brother Samuel, he stands up to offer a word. I think it's best to picture this with the anticipation of a, uh, of a, of a, of a toast at a wedding. It's one of those feelings where you know something is good, so you kind of start to smile even before they can get the microphone turned on. Brother Samuel stands up. Go ahead, Brother Samuel, speak to us. Here he is, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and I have made a king over you, and now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken? 
Or whose donkey have I taken? Or, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to, to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he, he is witness. So the mood is jubilant at this point. You can almost picture as Samuel is asking, and I don't know why I kept picturing this scene this week, but every time I got Chris Farley and John Candy in the scene, I don't know why, they're just in it in my mind. Uh, but you can almost picture it as, as Samuel is asking, you know, have I ever taken anyone's ox and some guy welling out, he's never taken one of my ox. Um, and, and somebody else, me either, he's never taken one of mine. And he continues, or whose donkey have I taken? Nope, never taken one of my donkeys. Donkeys fully accounted for. And Samuel gets the end and he basically says, so you all stand as my witness that I have faithfully served all of you. And they all respond in verse 5, God is our witness. You have faithfully served us. Samuel's point is, so there's no reason to not trust me. Is that right? He's setting them up. Keeps going, though. Keeps going. Mood still jubilant. Everybody's happy. Verse 6, and Samuel said to the people, so he continues with his speech, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. Verse 10. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asteroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord said to Jerubbabel and Barak and Japheth and Samuel and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. So the mood begins to turn ever so slightly. It, it's like the best man bringing up some trouble spots from the past. Hmm. Samuel reminds the people of their days in the slavery in Egypt, but he presents a silver lining by focusing on the fact that, you know, God did bring you out of that. God has saved you. He then moves to talk about some things in the more recent past where the people had disobeyed the Lord and, and the Lord allowed through reactive discipline to, uh, to let them fall into their enemies' hands. He reminds them of, of how God listened to their cries for mercy and provided them rescuers. He lists them. You remember Jerubbabel and how he saved you and Barak and, and how uh, they took care of you and Japheth. In each situation, God uses judges to provide the people 
uh, help, a rescue to defend them. Samuel even lists himself there. He lists himself right after Japheth. He lists himself as one. Why? Because we can remember how God used him in, in 1 Samuel 7 to, to help the people be rescued from the Philistines and routed them without the people even having to, to lift a finger. Samuel, Samuel is setting them up. See, what he's doing is he's reminded them how God had taken care of Israel through the judges. He uses himself, himself as an example of a faithful judge. They just told him, you have been faithful. We all just swore to it before our new king and before God. You were faithful. And now he says, and you just swore to me that God has been faithful. So Israel has every reason, according to their own mouth, every reason to, to trust God and to trust their judges. If the people strayed, God disciplined them. That, that would lead to repentance, and then God would raise up a rescuer, a judge. This formula had been used throughout the time of the judges. We're going to call that the judge formula. God was willing to protect his people and show them mercy, but every time they would have to repent, they would have to have faith in God, and they would have to wait for God to act and depend upon his mercy. That's the judge formula. <laughs> now, Brother Samuel, <laughs> oh, does he change the mood of the party? The DJ stops the music when we get to verse 12. The, the people are wide-eyed. Parents are trying to silence their children. A, a silent awkwardness ensues. Verse 12. And when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no. But a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was king. Samuel points out that the very victory that they are celebrating is no more than an act of rebellion against God. It was Israel's declaration of independence from having to rely upon the mercy of God. For the, the victory over Nahash was a watershed moment. It was the first victory in the new era the era of the judge formula was over. The new era of the king formula had begun. And 1 Samuel chapter 11 represents the first king formula transition. Go back and reread it. Let me tell you what you will not find. You will find no spot where the people of God repent before God. You will find no spot where the people of God reach out and seek God's mercy and wait upon Him. You will find no spot of them consistently crying out to God and waiting for God to act. It's all horizontal. It's all human transa transactions. Nahash threatens. The people try to make a deal with him. They get a lousy deal. They cry out, but not to God. They just cry like babies to themselves. 
And then God acts. Without being sought after or asked, He sends their newly chosen king to the rescue. He shows them mercy. You might think of life under the judge formula like a passenger flying standby. The people of Israel were required to live and wait on the mercy of God. Now they wanted confirmed seats. The people thought the king formula, well, that would be more like a confirmed seat. They would not have to repent. They would not have to live and wait upon the mercies of God. They could just invest in a king. He would take care of them. They could rebel against God. And they wouldn't have to worry about it because they could always see their defense before them. The people were fine with keeping God. They just didn't want to have to wait upon his mercies. Okay. Well, now you've got his, so you see his argument. This is beautiful. Hey, hey, I've taken good care of you. You have. Hey, hey, God's taken good care of you. He has. And yet you rejected both of us. Okay, that's fine. Let me tell you what you've won. This is life under the king formula, verses 13 and 14. And now, behold the king whom you have chosen, <laughs> for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Wish we had time to dive into that. Love how much the Bible sets up divine sovereignty, that is, divine control and human responsibility. It's just another great text with that. But anyway, verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and, your, and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. So what does life under the king formula look like? Well, here's the way it goes. So long, this is all that has to happen. So long as the people will fear the Lord and serve the Lord, everything is going to go swimmingly well. But it's not just the people that have to fear the Lord and serve the Lord. It's also their king. Both the people and their king will have to fear the Lord and serve the Lord. But so long as that happens, everything is going to go how? It's going to go well. But wait a second. How's the track record of the people fearing and serving the Lord look? Well, as Samuel just pointed out, it's not so hot. They've got a really long and, and storied history of consistently turning away from the Lord their God. Now under the king formula, the people must be sure that they get their act cleaned up and now they got to also make sure that their king fears and serves the Lord. Because now their king, their fate is tied to the fate of the king. Now, wait a second. Given all the temptations of being king, how likely is it that the king can be trusted to fear and serve the Lord? So while the people could not control their own ability to fear and serve the Lord, they've now tied their fate to the fate of a king who is even more likely to fail in fear and serving the Lord than they are. So this is one of those moments when in a transaction, uh, you stop 
in a contract and say, but what would happen if we didn't, let's just say, fear and serve the Lord at all times? What would be the consequence of that? Verse 15 through 18. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel's and Samuel. Whew. So what happens if you don't keep your promises long and short, you're going to face the very judgment of God. And just in case the people forgot about what the judgment of God looks like, Samuel calls upon the Lord to remind them they're in the middle of wheat harvest. You don't get thunderstorms in the middle of wheat harvest. And just like that, Samuel calls upon the Lord and uh, thunder and lightning hit and the people are gripped with fear. It reminds us of the, the, that moment in Exodus 19 where they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai and, and the Lord shows up. As you can imagine, at this point in the party, there's no more music. There's no more dancing. The party takes a completely different direction. But the truth is, the entire history of Israel from this moment on takes a very different direction. I don't think you can overstate this. From this moment on, the fate of the people, catch this, will be directly tied to the obedience of their king. Say it again. From this moment on, the fate of the people will be directly tied to the obedience of their king. And what will this look like? What will it look like if their fate is tied to the obedience of their king? I'm telling you, the Bible just blows my mind. It's almost too much. We're going to skip down, and I want you to see the very next chapter. It, you can't make this stuff up. The very next chapter it answers a question for us. This is what life will probably look like with your new king. Verse 1 of chapter 13. Saul lived one year and then became king, and he had reigned for two years over Israel. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this verse. There's actually a lot of debate on the exact meaning. The Hebrew is pretty tough to pull off here. My best guess is that it's telling us that it's been one year uh, 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 tell us this, the chapter 12 is situated one year from the anointing of chapter 10 and that by the time this thing is over, chapter 13 is over, it'll be two years from chapter 10. But that's, that's a best guess. Verse 2. Saul, this is their king. Just keep it in mind. They just signed a deal that said our fate is, is wrapped up with the fate of our king. Unreal. Verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash, 
in the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Verse 3, Jonathan. Now, we're not told this yet. We'll be told this later. This is Saul's son. Got it? Jonathan is Saul's son. Keith. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard it and saw it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. What is going on here? Well, we are told that Saul first downgrades the army, then we are told that his son Jonathan, while he's downgrading the army, his son Jonathan goes on to single-handedly defeat a garrison of Philistines. Well, now, wait a second. We've seen this term, garrison of Philistines, before. We sure have. We saw it back in chapter 10. Yep, that's where Saul is told to encounter the Philistines, the garrison of Philistines, and we presume he's told to attack them this would lead to a major conflict and before moving forward in it then the philistines the philistines would want to attack them after this and what is saul supposed to do go down in gilad and wait for samuel the problem is saul never touched the philistines that's the only problem and now it takes his son to do that so in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, it says this, Then go down before me, this is after you've attacked the Philistines, go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you should do. So after an attack on the Philistine garrison, Saul was to wait for Samuel seven days in Gilgal. But in chapter 10, that never happens because Saul never touches them. But here in chapter 13, we understand that while Saul never attacked him, his son does. It's an indictment on Saul. You won't do what God has asked you to do. You're not courageous enough to attack him, but your son will single-handedly attack him for you. It's an indictment on the first king of Israel. There's your king. And now, just like it had been told, they are waiting where? In Gilgal, verse 5 through 8. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. I've given you a map. Long story short, you're going to see Gilgal and Michmash are right next to each other. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and rocks and tombs and in cisterns. Yuck! And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, 
trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Jonathan stirs up a hornet's nest, man. Oh, I love Jonathan. You're going to love him throughout, throughout 1 Samuel. He doesn't care. They amass, the Philistines come, they put together about 36,000 to come fight Israel. They are close together, Gilgal and Michmash. Verse 8 shows that Saul recognizes that he needs to wait on Samuel as he'd been told before. He knows he's got to wait seven days. He's feeling the pressure. He's got the stress of this massive Philistine army. You can almost feel their breath. They're so close. He's got his own army running and dispersing. And all the while, he's got this commandment of God that tells him to wait. What in the world would he do? You catch what's happening, right? This is right after they're just told your fate is directly tied to your king's fate. It's genius. Just a few verses back, the scene's been set up for us. And now, here's their king. He's faced with a tough predicament. Will he wait on God and trust in the mercy of God, or will he try to figure it out himself? Is he okay to fly standby? Or does he need a confirmed seat? Verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Sadly, the king does as the people do. He takes matters in his own hands. He will not leave the fate or his people's fate tied to the mercies of the promises of God. Instead, the king takes matters in his own hands. And what he does is as ignorant as it is heinous, as is incredibly symbolic. Saul offers the burnt offering himself. If you've read how God set up the sacrifices in Exodus and Leviticus, your mouth falls open that he would dare do this. And maybe even more surprising is that he could dare do it and live to tell about it. God remains merciful and patient. In verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, mm, mm, Behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days you appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. I hope you see the comparison here. It's a comparison of the king and Adam and Eve. While Adam and Eve were smart enough to go hide from God, Saul runs right out to Samuel. Like Adam and Eve made excuses, Saul makes excuses. The people wanted a king just like all the rest of the nations. 
Well, here he is. The problem is that your king is as flawed as every human born unto sinful humans. He is cursed with the same problem as his first parents. So the people traded in the judge formula for the king formula. They traded in flying standby for a confirmed seat. They got a confirmed seat. Unfortunately, they didn't check the destination. So what are they to do? Well, praise God. There is a ton of hope in these two chapters and it's found in the few verses we haven't looked at yet. Look with me at verses 12, 12. This is right there, right between, we jumped right through it and went to chapter 13. Oh, there's hope. Verse 19. Sorry, I said chapter, it's 12, chapter 12, verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. <laughs> for we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it had pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So the people trade in their standby tickets for confirmed seats, and now they're begging for the opportunity to fly standby again. Please, just let us presume and pray upon the mercies of God. And being the merciful God He is, God says, or Samuel tells him, the Lord will not forsake his people. Praise God. They can count on the mercies of God because the mercies of God will not run out. Brother and sister, hear that. You can count on the mercies of God because the mercies of God will not run out. So does this mean that God is not allowing them to, or is allowing them to trade back in the king formula for the judge formula? No, that ship has sailed. The king formula is there to stay from 1 Samuel chapter 8 all the way to eternity. The people of God will be saved through king formula logic. That is, God's people's fate will forever and eternally be tied to the fate of God their king. But if our king is like the other nations, then how will we ever be saved? Well, that's where things just get incredibly cool. God accepted their desire for the king formula, but praise God, he rejected their king standard. 
Instead of settling on a king like the other nations, such that the people would end up in judgment like all the other nations, God gave his people a king entirely different from all the other nations. Listen to this hope in chapter 13, verse 13 and 14. Not so much hopeful for Saul, but unbelievably hopeful for us. Verse 13. This is right after Samuel's disciplined him for his ways. This is Samuel's response. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So while God rejected Saul, Samuel points to a king who would be different than the kings of the other nations. He points in hope to a king after God's own heart. Now that would be immediately fulfilled in David, as we'll see in chapter 16, but will finally and ultimately be fulfilled in the late Son of David, Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ, we all fly standby. Jesus, our Savior, took our confirmed seat on a one-way ticket to hell and judgment. There our King Jesus boarded the flight. He strapped Himself in and He rode the flight directly into the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary. He did not parachute out early, but He flew directly into the inferno of God's wrath. Jesus sat in your confirmed seat and in my confirmed seat. His name was nowhere on the flight manifest. He had never once drawn even the slightest ounce of the judgment of God. And so back at the terminal, we're all sitting there. Jesus just boarded with all of our boarding passes with confirmed seats on a flight destined to God's wrath. Because of Jesus, praise God, we will not be headed towards God's wrath. But where will we go? Well, we all look at the only other gate. The destination is oddly marked, blessings for full obedience. Before Jesus boarded the other flight on our behalf, that the screen on this gate it only said no seats available. But as that earlier flight headed towards God's wrath with Jesus on board, we notice the oddest, the greatest thing. All of a sudden, a list of names started to populate on the standby list. And what do you know? Your name is on the board. My name. It's on the board too. We went from confirmed on a flight destined for God's wrath to standby on a flight destined for the blessings of God for full obedience. What in the world made the difference? 
crazy enough, it was the king formula. Our faith, praise God, is forever tied to the fate of our king. He took our confirmed seat on the flight headed to God's wrath, and he has opened up seats on the flight headed to God's blessings. That's the gospel. It traces its logic down to a weird party in 1 Samuel chapter 12. There in God's mercy, he determined not to wipe the people out, but instead forever tied our fate to the fate of our king. In his abundant grace, he provided his only son to be our king, a king like us in our humanity, but not like us in our sinfulness. As great of news as that is, I'm going to be honest, it is so hard for me to swallow. I don't like standby. <laughs> it means I have to submit my fate purely to the mercy of someone else. It means I have to admit that I've got nothing to offer. There's no way if I wanted to, I could get myself a confirmed seat. My fate is wholly tied to the fate of my king. That's life and salvation, but it's also true with life every single day. We must regularly practice repentance, renew our trust, wait. Ah, oh, it's so hard. Wait on God to work out his will and ways. Christianity requires us to rely upon God day in and day out. God uses our circumstances and our challenges to train our hearts for flying standby because that's the only way you'll ever make it into the blessings of God. Let's pray. Father, that you could take the incredible disrespect of your people saying they were tired of having to wait on you. They're tired of having to wait for you to protect them. That you could have them look around at the pathetic kings of the other nations and say they wanted someone like those rascals instead. I don't know how you, how in any way you could be so merciful. But thank you. Thank you that in the midst of all that stupidity and foolishness, that you orchestrated a way to save our souls. Father, I pray if there is anybody here who thinks in some way or another that they really are going to make it on their own without regularly, I mean regularly, just waiting upon the mercies of God. Just pray you'd open up their eyes to see it is never 
going to happen. I pray, Father, they would see there's a very good king and he has already provided a way. Father, entice our hearts to love our king. Would your spirit show us that through, our, through your word? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. I pray that it will be used for your people. Amen.